and in Wales, they usually add to that statement that all the people of God say amen, and some said hallelujah. <laughs> I just want to answer two questions that I've been asked <coughs> at the lunch period. Somebody asked me uh, why they wanted to know, I don't know, but they said, when did you and Larry first meet? Well, Larry mentioned that last night. It was at Greenwood Hills in connection with the Bible study week that used to be run by CMML, followed by they had a missionary a conference for missionaries and a um, missionary orientation program. And for about four years, four alternating years, I went there, spent the week at the men's Bible study trying to lead it, and then following the second week, the missionary conference and the missionary orientation program, I enjoyed that very much. Except when I went to speak for the first time at the men's Bible study, I'd let myself in for something that I wasn't prepared for. They had invited 50 men <coughs> there, and they all arrived with their books and their computers even then. This must be about, I don't know, 15, 16, 17, 18 years ago. And uh, of course, amongst the men were brothers like Larry Price, Keith Kaiser, Randy Amos, the Swain brothers, Henry Sardinia, and all that mob. And uh, it was uh, really, for the person trying to lead the thing, was a pretty stressful time. Uh, because at least when you're here, you can say something, and you hope, you know, you might say, well, that's what Darby says. And um, uh, nobody's any the wiser. But there, they just immediately looked up their book, or they looked up their computer, and uh, would say, well, Darby didn't say that, you know, so. <laughs> But I enjoyed those uh, periods. I shared those meetings alternate years with David Gooding. I'm sure his sessions were much more productive than mine. So that's the answer to one question. The other question is, um, what is precious seed? And uh, somebody also said, have you, have you written any books? Well, let me tell you, first of all, I haven't written any books. The, uh, I haven't got the concentration and time to do that. I'm easily distracted. And um, so I haven't done that, but I have written parts of books. And the um, Precious Seed Ministry started just after the second, end of the Second World War in the southwest of England by a group of men, a very small magazine to start with, and then it has grown over the years until at one time it reached a circulation of over 20,000 copies. It's still going strong. There are now still about 16,000 copies produced. They go to over 100 countries around the world. It's a quarterly magazine, it's free, and um, wherever I go, people talk to me about it and um, say how helpful and encouraging it is. I was sort of chairman of that trust. Um, uh, I was a member of that trust for about 30 years and uh, chairman for around about 15 and general editor for about the same period of time. I retired from it last August, as I mentioned last night. Uh, that's one aspect of the Precious Seed work. Another aspect is the website, and uh, if you've never looked at the website, it's preciousseed.org, preciousseed.org. And um, on the website are all the issues of the magazine from the very beginning right up to date. And the interesting thing about it is that that whole database is searchable. So if you want to see amongst all those things, any sermons or any, every time, in fact, for example, Elisha or Elijah have been mentioned, you can find it there. And it's very helpful as a resource 
uh, for individual study like that. The third aspect of the work of Precious Seed is the books, and um, they continue to publish books. Uh, the books they started off with, first of all, were the day-by-day -day series that have been mentioned, and of course the day-by-day -day books, there are about 12 different ones there, and um, they're devotional reading books, uh, a day for each, um, a reading for each day of the year. As uh, Dave said last night, I think this, this thing about, the distinctive thing about those books is that in each book for the year there are 24 authors. Each takes a fortnight of readings. So if you get fed up with somebody, um, you think, well, I've only got another three days of him and then I can change. Um, and I, I think out of the 12, copy, the 12 books that are there, the 12 titles that are there, um, I have written in 10 of them. I don't know why you would want to read anything that I have written after having listened to me, but if you did, then you will find it in those um, precious seed day-by-day -day, um, devotional readers. Some people actually buy them and don't read them. Um, <laughs> what they do is they keep them on their shelf and they use it as a resource for study. Because if you want to find out what I might call the sort of the classic or typical um, brethren or assembly uh, interpretation or teaching in connection with almost anything in the Bible, you'll find it in those books. So do have a look at them and it's, um, it'd be nice if at the end of the conference there were no books to be sent back to um, our friends at Gospel Folio Press because not only do they pay for the carriage here, but they also pay for the carriage back again. So you could save him some money as well. So thank you for listening to that. Now the book of James again, the epistle of James chapter 1. And we read from verse number 5 on this occasion. Uh, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. That giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of, grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, we spent our time this morning in my message from James chapter 1, talking about the background, talking about different ways of looking at the uh, epistle of James, uh, thinking about who had wrote it and to whom he had written it. I mentioned, I think, it was probably one of the first epistles that was written, probably written somewhere around about A.D. 62, 63, 64, a very early epistle indeed. 
James was writing to refugees, trying to cheer them up in the midst of all their troubles and persecutions. And um, he was telling them how he felt and therefore how the Lord feels that one should handle trials that come our way. And we ended up, I think, um, at the point where uh, James was advising that it is beneficial if one can look upon the trial as an investment. That is, if you like, an investment by God in you. And when God takes time to invest in you, he's doing so not only for your benefit, but also for his own best interests. If I'm going to invest in a business, I do it to help the business and I do it to help myself. And it is a wonderful consolation to remember in days of trial that God has chosen me. And of course, you might ask, well, why did he choose me? And I love the answer that's brought to us in Ephesians. He did it. He chose us according to the good pleasure of his will. I sometimes wonder why he chose me. And I understand from Ephesians, he chose me because doing so brought him great delight. And of course, he not only chooses us, but he supports us and sustains us and helps us and keeps us. And therefore, he has invested in us and expects to see, as any sensible person would, expects to see a return on that investment. And the last thing he wants you to do is to walk away from him, to lose faith in him, to lose hope in him. And he, will, he guarantees and undertakes to support you and I in all our trials and difficulties as we go along. The last thing we said was about the ability to see our situation, to see our trial, to see our difficulty in the way that God sees it. And if we can do that, if we can see the big picture and understand that what's happening to us is at the end of the day, although it might be unbelievable just now, at the end of the day, God is molding us into the type of Christian that he always planned for you to be. And I think that's a great encouragement. Now, I want to cover the next few verses because I should say in verse 5, let him ask of God. Well, sometimes we might feel that it's not a good thing to ask God. I would say to you today, if you are feeling upset with God, if you are feeling, if you like, disappointed and to some extent disillusioned, and wonder why these things have been happening to you, then it might well be a good idea to ask God why. And uh, I remember one man in the Old Testament, was it uh, our friend Habakkuk? Uh, Habakkuk was a prophet, a preacher, and he went through a period of time when he was making these prophecies and nothing was happening. They weren't being fulfilled. And Habakkuk got a bit worried about that and a bit fed up with it, I think, and um, he one day went to God and sort of said to God, when are there going to be answers to my prayers? When are these prophecies going to be fulfilled? And then he thought that maybe wasn't the best idea in the world to have spoken to God like that. So he went away and he hid himself in a tower, expecting, if you like, perhaps as we have heard the bolt of thunder or the uh, flash of lightning from God and judgment upon him. And I... He didn't hear any of the, see any of that, and he did just hear the voice of God. And I, I love to think of it this way. God said to him, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, listen, listen, Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. Listen, I want you to live by faith. I'll do the fulfilling in due course, 
but I want you to live by faith. And had Habakkuk never asked the question, then it would never, the answer would never have been repeated three times in our New Testament. So ask God. You say, God might be angry. Look at our verse. He is a God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. He is a God of patience, a God of kindness. He understands your situation and how deeply you feel the trial. He will not be angry with you. He will not upbraid you. He'll take you by the hand and help you through the darkest days of your life. And then verses 6 and 7, uh, and verse 8 as well, are suggesting to us that if I am going to ask God, then I must be prepared for the answer. And the answer might just be that you've actually seen nothing yet, that there's worse to come. So take a second breath before you ask God, because it might be that there's worse to come. And of course, that has been proven in people's experience time and again. They thought they'd already reached the bottom of the barrel, only to discover that they would go right through the bottom and even lower than they ever thought was possible to go. And so he says, if you're going to ask God, you need faith. Faith to ask, faith to accept the answer, and faith to go on. Maybe it's better, after all, not to ask. And to wait until that day when that little verse I quoted you at the end, when you wait till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly, when God unrolls the canvas and shows the reason why the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. If I'm doubtful when I ask God, if I wonder whether or not God can do it, then I better not ask because here it says, let not that man think, the man who doubts, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Not that he shall not receive anything. Of course, he will receive lots of things. But he will not receive any specific answer to that specific request because in his heart, he doesn't really believe that God will answer. He's like the double-minded man of verse 8, unstable in all his ways. I should have said earlier, perhaps, that one of the ways to uh, read through the epistle of James, of course, James, the Old Testament name is Jacob, and uh, you'll remember Jacob's 12 sons. Now, it is possible if you put your mind to it, it's not easy, but if you put your mind to it, it is possible to discover throughout the epistle of James, Jacob's 12 sons, at least their characteristics. Let me give you the easy one to start with. You remember Jacob's eldest son? Well, Jacob said to him as he lay on his deathbed, he said, Reuben, unstable is water, thou shalt not excel. We've just read the verse. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways because he is driven by the wind, that is, outside influences, and tossed, that is, inside doubts, if you like, and so that double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. But having said that, I now want to go on for the sake of time to verse number nine. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, we're still talking about trials here. Remember that. So here is a brother or sister of low degree. Um, what does that mean? 
Well, it means a brother or sister in whose life there may be poverty, in whose life they may not enjoy the real good things of this world, of this earth. They may feel that they're not really terribly accepted in the assembly to which they belong. They might feel that the people don't like them and don't talk to them and set them aside. And they wonder whether they should continue in the fellowship in such circumstances. A brother or sister of low degree. And then on top of that, they encounter trials. And so says James here, let the brother of low degree who is already suffering in various ways, when a trial comes, let him rejoice. You would say, how could you do that? What the trial proves is that that brother or sister of low degree, although they don't have much of a high view of themselves, and although maybe their neighbors and friends don't have much of a high view of them either, and maybe the assembly membership doesn't view them very highly either. The fact that they now face a trial is an indication that their God loves them, that their God is providing for them. Because to endure a trial is to have the specific reassurance that I am indeed a child of God. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And he deals with every son of his in that particular way. And so I say to you today, if you feel perhaps not accepted amongst the Lord's people as you might be, or as you thought you would, and financially and otherwise times are tough, and a trial comes into your life, that is, in a way, like receiving a postcard from God that says, look, you're my son, and I love you, and I'm going to help you. I'm investing in you for the future. So the brother of low degree should rejoice in that he is exalted. But the rich, in this case, I think, but the rich brother, in he that is made low, in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. You know, the rich, and we thank God for them, sometimes in James, richness, uh, indeed in the Old Testament, and maybe in the New as well, you have promised prophets like Amos that railed against the rich because they equated richness, riches with wickedness, riches that had been won in the wrong way at the expense of the poor. But here now, this rich man is rich. We're not told whether his riches are good or bad. But this rich man rejoices too. And why does he rejoice in that he's brought low? Well, that seems a strange thing to rejoice in, doesn't it? That I've been brought low. Let's imagine for a moment or two that I'm a rich man. And I'm driving home one evening from a meeting and my car breaks down. And I say to myself, well, no problem there. I'll call the RAC or the three A's, two A's back at home and um, get them to come and sort it. Meantime, in case it takes them a little bit of time, I'll go into the nearest five-star hotel and I'll spend the night there. So I go into the hotel to the reception desk and I flash my gold card at the man and I say, have you a room for me tonight? And he says, yes, sir, of course, sir. Anything you want, sir, we'll give you a good room. And so I get a good room. And the next day I decide I'll go home on the train 
and send one of my men down to collect the car. Uh, that's a, a truer story than you think because um, that did happen to me when I was still at work and could do things like that. Um, but, but, you see, I'm a rich man. I can pay my way out of anything. However, sometimes the Lord might bring into my life something that money can't solve. Health, bereavement, other sorrows. And I was going to say in spite of my riches, but maybe even because of my riches, these other things bring me right down to bottom base. And my being brought down as a rich man to bottom base is in effect a good thing because God's flagging up a message he has for me, which is, Roy, you're a rich man, but I love you. You're my son. You're my child. I'm investing in you. So, the investment that God makes in the lives of his people for a person of low degree, it will exalt them and lift them up. For a man or woman who is rich, it'll bring them down and teach them that at the end of the day, the only thing they can rely on is the love of God and his plans for them. And so he goes on to say that the rich man, of course, his riches, and again, you can see comparisons here that we do not have time to go into in connection with the Sermon on the Mount, that the rich man is made low as the flower of the grass, his riches will pass away. The sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. I mean, that would be particularly appropriate for the Middle East, um, this um, talking here of the grass and the flowers withering. And one of our trips to Israel, we went there, I think, in the month of March. And uh, our tour guide said to us that when we were there, the flowers were in full bloom. Beautiful it was. And our guide said, good job you're here and not here three weeks later. He said, these flowers last about a month. And then they're gone. The scorching heat of the summer kills them off. Riches are of that nature that they can take to themselves wings and fly away. And yet you and I spend so much of our time in the pursuit of them to a greater or lesser extent. I want to draw your attention to verse 12, which sort of wraps up what we've been saying so far. Verse 12 is a little summary of the teaching of the first 11 verses. And what he says here is, blessed or happy is the man that endureth trials. In other words, if I come through a trial, then I am blessed, I am happy. For when he is approved, is the idea of this verse, not when he is tried, but when he is approved, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, there is no doubt in my mind that one of the crowns that we shall receive in a coming day at the judgment seat of Christ is the crown of life, amongst other things. But I'm not so sure that that's what is meant here. The objective is 
that when God tests me, I am approved. If God thinks I'm going to fail, he'll not test me yet. I mean, there's no point in testing a four-year-old with the information that a 12-year-old should know. You know, we don't even do that ourselves. And certainly God would never do that. And we remember, too, that with every trial, just in case, he provides a way of escape in case it does become too much. You might wonder, can a trial turn into a temptation? What do you think? I'm not sure that it can. Remember, a trial comes from God to help us fly. A temptation comes from the devil to make sure we fall. I'm not too sure that the two of them, one can turn into the other. So here he says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is approved. When he has passed, when he has come through, what will happen? He shall receive the crown of life. I think this is indicative that this crown of life is gettable down here. Now, it's not that people walk through life with a nice crown on their head or something like that. The crown of life here, I think, is a figurative statement. The crown of life is a crown for living. A crown is worn by a king or a queen to demonstrate their authority and their confidence. And what coming through a trial does for me is to give me confidence. And if I have that confidence, then when the next trial comes my way, as it undoubtedly will, I can face it with my head held high, knowing that he brought me through that, therefore he can bring me through this, no matter how different it might be. For when he is approved, well, when are you approved? When does that happen? Well, supposing you had set a test to get into one of these famous colleges in Claremont. And you have set the test. You've sat the test. And you don't hear anything from the college. So you ring them up and say, I would like to know whether or not I pass the exam. And the nice lady at the other end of the phone says, well, I don't know. You say, well, when might I know? He said, well, you won't know because we don't tell people when they've passed. She would say, do I want to go to this college? They say, no, we don't share that information. I'm sorry, I can't tell you how you've done. Well, you, well do I have to do it again? No information on that. You'd say, that's all a bit strange. But if you ring up and say, how did I do? And they say, you passed. You say, wow, look at that, I did it. Or if they say, no, you didn't, you say, well, I'll try again. You see, a trial can only be beneficial if we know we've passed. And I think you know that you've passed your trial in a variety of ways. Number one, you're here today. You're still going. You're still going on for the Lord. That's great news. And if you are going to receive the crown of life, do you have to wait for another, well, depending on when the Lord comes, who knows, but another century maybe before you get it? Well, of course not. You'll be, be forgetting then why you were getting it. I think what happens is this, when we have passed that trest and trial down here, the Lord immediately gives to us 
a confidence, a crown for living. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in him. That we can rely on him, we can trust him, and he will bring us through. He shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. And even if you don't come through with flying colors, so long as you come through, maybe battered, bruised, and hurt, you still receive the crown of life because it's promised to them that love him. Then there is a very strange verse in verse number 13. Indeed, there is a change here now because we're moving from trials to temptations. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Let no man say when he is tempted. I mentioned to you earlier in the day that a temptation is something that comes slowly. It's something that's in my mind to start with. It might be in my mind for days, weeks, months, years. I could stop thinking about it if I wanted to. It comes slowly. I then not only have it in my mind, but I begin to look around for possibilities of putting what's been in my mind into action. I could stop that any time I wanted to, too. And it might be that up pops an opportunity to put into practice what has been in my mind. And I could say no to that. You see, a temptation, there's ways out as you go along. Not like a trial, there are ways out as you go along. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Would anybody say that? That God is tempting me? James thinks they might. You know, you might say, for example, if you get into some difficulty, some problem, some sin, you might think, but God could have, God could have kept me out of that. God could have made sure I wasn't, if you like, tried by this temptation. And of course, the thing is that Satan knows you and knows your weaknesses and mine thoroughly well. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, he said, the prince of this world, Satan, cometh, but he can find nothing in me. In other words, the meaning is, Satan comes to the Lord Jesus Christ and he finds there are no levers he can pull to bring him down. But I tell you this, when Satan comes to me, he knows me well and he knows the levers to pull to bring me down. And he has great delight in time to time in pulling them. That, let, me not, let me not say, let me not say that if I got into trouble and into sin, God could have kept me out of it and he didn't. That is arrogance and that is a shame that anybody should ever think that. Why not? For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. If you wanted to do sin, the last person to ask as to how you would go about it would be God. He knows nothing about it. 
and so it is here now, that the only person that can be blamed, there are two possibilities. Number one is that it was Satan to blame. Number two is that it was you to blame. Your wicked heart and my wicked heart was at fault. And of course, as I've said, we could have resisted. Remember the words of Peter? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So here now, let us know that if we are tempted to sin, it was not God's fault. He would never do that to you. Never at all. Then look at verse number 14. But every man is tempted. Or put, that, put it this way, perhaps better. But each man, and of course man here means woman as well, but each person, each individual person is tempted. You see, the things that I might be tempted by, you would walk past them with your head in the air. They wouldn't cause you a bit of bother at all. And the things that might tempt you might have no effect on me at all. It's an individual thing that each man, each person, is tempted. How does it happen? Well, as I've said and mentioned this earlier this morning, when he is drawn away with his own lust and enticed. Now, look at that. When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. The word lust occurs quite a few times in the New Testament. It can be a good thing. One may lust after righteousness. It means a compelling desire. But in the main, and certainly here, lust is used in an evil sense. And here it is used in that way. How does it happen? Drawn away. I think the picture here, the background to here, is perhaps a fisherman. And this fisherman is going down to the river, hopefully to catch fish. He knows the best time of day or night to go. He knows the best place in the river in which to fish. He knows which kind of fish he wants us to catch. And he knows the bait that they are most susceptible to. Just like the devil on a fishing expedition. When this man gets down to the riverside, he makes himself comfortable. He might have a long stay. He might not, but he might have a long stay. And so he attaches the bait to the, um, to the hook and to the line and casts it into the river. And in the river, at this point, there are quite a number of fish. At first, they sort of ignore the bait, really. They have other things to do. And uh, then one or two of them notice this bait, you see, and they look at it. And it seems the longer they look at it, the better it looks. And so in order to really try to get them to bite, the fisherman begins to move his rod a little bit, you say. That moves the line, that moves the hook. And suddenly this bait from just sitting in front of you is now moving from side to side. And these fish are watching it. You would think they were at Wimbledon at a tennis uh, match or something, you know. To... <laughs> and so the bait moves and they move. and it gets a grip of them. Now, there are some old fish there, and they've seen all this before, you see, and they're not going to do anything, are they? But there are some younger fish there, 
and they see it moving, and they're watching it, and they're watching it. And suddenly, almost out of control themselves now, they go for it and bang, they're caught, hooked, pulled out, killed, just like that. I don't know what's been attracting you recently in the world. But it has an almost hypnotic effect. Sin. And you've been watching it, my friend. And maybe so have I. And we watch it. And it grows more attractive by the day. We become obsessed with it. I use the word advisedly. I could have used her or him. We become obsessed with it. Our mind sort of goes. Our thinking becomes harnessed, if you like. And one of these days, I'm going to jump at this thing. And it will destroy my life. I say to you today, and I say to myself today also, that in this highly technological world in which we live, that each one of God's people who own a computer are maybe two or at the most three clicks away from disaster. I say to younger men and women in the meeting today that in your life you will, be meet, you will meet other people. Young marrieds will see other people, will think about them, wonder about them, become obsessed by them and eventually take a step that will not only destroy them, but their family, the other person's family, the children, everybody else too associated with it. You know, you would think if you could get somebody to sit down and write down on a piece of paper the pros and cons of a relationship in which, into which they should not be entering, that that would make so much sense that they'd never do it. But the thing is, you see, they're caught up already. They're enchanted. They're hypnotized. They're acting illogically. Common sense has gone. And I say to you today, if you find yourself in some circumstances just like that, or if you do in the future, what are you going to do? I say to you this, the sooner you stop it, the better. You can still get out of it. Maybe tomorrow it will be too late. What am I to do? What am I to do, what I am to do is that I confess my sin to God and I make that phone call or I write that letter and I say no. Many say yes, and as I say, it is a most destructive influence in the lives and testimonies of Christians, as described in verse number 15. Then when lust hath conceived, 
In other words, in my heart and in every heart, there is a lust after evil which must in the Christian be controlled and set upon and beaten down. But when lust hath conceived, when I begin to think about it, when I begin to take steps in connection with it, what happens? It bringeth forth sin. Now, this is birthing language, isn't it? Conception. When there's a conception, it's followed by a birth, generally speaking. When it hath conceived, it bringeth forth, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. There are some things that you can get involved in that you will never be rid of. Because it gives birth to something. The idea of an affair and a relationship is only an example of that. Maybe out of it a child is born. That child will probably live longer than you live. And if it's other things to which you have yielded to temptation, what it gives birth to will live with you for the rest of your life. It may be that you eventually repent and you confess your sins in the knowledge that God will forgive you. And he will. And your family might forgive you too. And the assembly might forgive you as well. But you will never, ever forgive yourself. This thing will live with you and haunt you for the rest of your days. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It may result in physical death, as happened to some in the church at Corinth. For this reason, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, many die. Of course, death is not always due to sin by any means at all. James later talks about a man who is ill, and he's ill because he has sinned, and so he sends for the elders of the church to confess his sin, and they are not... You see the idea of the thinking here that James has in mind? And of course, as we think about this, let us know, let us remember, we shall never be able to forgive ourselves, and remember this, that Satan will never, ever allow us to forget. Such things will destroy you for the rest of your life. Even if you were to leave the assembly, leave God's people, walk away from the Lord... This thing will still be with you. And you will never, ever lose it. It makes it very solemn. It's not only a message for young people. It's a message for the middle-aged. It's a message for the older folks as well. Because we're all vulnerable. And as you go away from this meeting this afternoon, 
I don't want you to go away downhearted, but I have felt I should bring this message to you. But if this is a message for you, take my advice. Make that decision. Make that call. Call it off. Don't do it. If you take that stand, God will bless you. He'd be delighted with you. He, know that he, can he knows that he can trust you. And he will invest in you. You know, it's very happy when, uh, it was very good, very nice when I was leading our business. And sometimes we go and visit our big shareholders and uh, we talk to them about how the whole thing was going. And, uh, and sometimes it was nice. They, they might say, well, look, Roy, we think, you know, the business, we're very happy with the business and uh, we're going to buy another tranche of shares. That was good. They were going to invest. Standing there now before you is the richest one in all the world who owns the cattle upon a thousand hills and he's looking around for people in whose lives he can invest. And he's looking at you and he's looking at me and he wants to make that investment. Don't hinder him from doing it. Accept the offer. Enjoy the blessing. Live your life for the Lord. And even if you are middle-aged, it's never too late. Take those important decisions now. I draw your attention to verse 16 and then I close. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Now some people see that as a summary of what we've been looking at in the first half of the chapter. Some see it as a little flag for the second half of the chapter. But whatever way it is, is this. The important things that we have been talking about, James is saying at this point to the readers, he says, don't make any mistake about what I've been saying. Do not be mistaken. And then in that lovely phrase, my beloved brethren. And so we have shared today this epistle of James, or part of it, a small part of it. I told you James was practical. I told you James didn't see any gray colors, only black and only white. But James was a lovely man, known as James the Just, a lovely man, a respected man, in whose heart lay the best interests of the people of God. And I hasten to assure you that anything that I've said today is really for your best interest too, and for mine. Shall we pray? Our Father, we come to thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, Lord, when we come to scriptures like that, like this, they almost frighten us. We know how vulnerable we are. We know that Satan has his eye on each of us. We know that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so easily, he could entice us away. We pray that his determinations might be frustrated and that we shall go on to love the Lord and to walk in his light and in his paths and that we shall bring in our lifetime glory and honor to his great name. 
We thank thee, our Father, that thou hast indeed invested in thy people. And we pray that thou wouldst help each of us to repay that investment with interest so that when we too stand on the other side in that wonderful other shore, that we shall indeed hear there also those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We ask these things, thanking thee for thy love to us and thy tender care and thine ability to take us by the hand and walk us through the darkest of days. Help us, Lord, to walk tall with our heads up high and not be afraid of the dark. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.